for me. Okay. Um, all right. I thought you were going to give me the action sign. I thought you were going to. Oh, yeah. I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on there. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving? A Global Adventure Exploring How to Use Your Gifts and Talents to Make a Difference. And today, as usual, I'm joined by my friend, Jay Mormon. Jay, how's it going? Good. Happy 4th, Kelsey. Yeah, we're recording this on the 4th of July. Jay, why is America the greatest country in the world? Oh, gosh. I can think of all the, all the fun reasons. You know, beer. Cause, you know, <laughs> beer. That's, that's our thing. What um, about Germany's all like, hey, what's, what about us? I don't like German beer. It's terrible. Um, you know, it's funny. I was watching uh, Chernobyl last night on HBO, and I thought, we would never be that stupid. And mm. yeah, we'd never be that stupid. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, we have a lot of great stuff, right? I, there are, at least from my perspective, the process works pretty well, legal process for me, right? Uh, you know, it's nice to have cops driving around when people get hurt or their bad things occur. And, um, you know, we have plenty of food and all those things that, that matter from day to day. But um, of course, there's a whole other side to what America is. Yeah, there's a whole lot of people that don't have the same opportunities and privileges in our own country as well. For right? sure. Yeah. Right, right uh, down the street. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a good American today. I'm going to Cincinnati Reds, uh, baseball game. Awesome. Pretty, pretty American, right? I'm, I'm going to go to the pool. Uh, are you? That's good. Yeah. I'm wearing a, can you see it? My USA uh, uh, yeah. that Annie bought me for some reason. Uh, no, yeah, no. Probably uh, because it was cheap. My mother-in-law bought it for me. Of course, oh. uh, it was made in Honduras, right? <laughs> And, you know, Honduras is the first country that kind of started all this where I met a guy named Emil Carr who outside the factory had made my shirt and, you know, stayed in touch with him through the years. And eventually he came to the United States uh, undocumented um, and got a job and supports his family in a way that he couldn't if you were actually with them back in Honduras. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really interesting to follow his story, especially right now, given all the, you know, those pictures that recently came out with, um, um, you know, the migrants. Uh, immigrants uh, that are locked away in staying room only like room yeah. kids the camps yeah. and, and so yeah that happens I you know I had this idea for a book and I probably shouldn't even talk about it I probably shouldn't share all my ideas for books but um, about in the United States how many of the things I write about many of the things that I talk about many of the organizations non-governmental organizations international ones like Save the Children like operate in the United States as well right and um, all the things that slavery, um, you know, hunger, extreme poverty, all those things exist in the United States. And I think sometimes that's hard for us to write when, you know, we're spending the fourth, you're going to spend it at the pool and I'm going to spend it at a baseball game. And we're, we're very fortunate, but still these things are happening right now on July 4th mm-hmm. yep. in our country. Um, I, I say that, I say, I ask you the question, why is America the greatest country in the world? Uh, I don't think you, you haven't watched the newsroom before. Um, no, but I know of it. Yeah. yeah it says Jeff Daniels. And this, this is what kicks it off. Uh, he's a, he's a journalist and he's on a panel and someone asked him, why is America the greatest country in the world? And, and like the people on the panel, like because of our freedom, because of this, you know, all like, I think like legitimate points to some extent. Yeah. The and standard, he, the standard list. Yeah. And then he's like, we're not. And then he just loses his shit. You know what I mean? He like goes off the rails and like cussing at this 20 year old college student asked the question. And so here's part of his soliloquy that he gave, uh, says, you know, he's like, we're not, we're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 27th in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories, number of incarcerated citizens per capita, Number of adults who believe angels are real. <laughs> <That's really good. laughs> I don't. I don't know about fact checking this, right? Oh and, man! And defense spending, uh, where we spend more than the next twenty-six countries combined, twenty-five of whom are allies. Mm. Uh, and that's a that's just a part of his speech, but I thought that was pretty good. Um, and so, you know, there was a time for me, like Fourth of July, was sparklers and running through the sprinklers and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe um, either this mythologized, I don't know what I'm trying to say, Jay, kind of watered down version Mm -hmm. of 
history um, before I, there was more awareness, right? Yeah, it feels like one of those things once you, once you not only our own history and um, when you see it from the perspective of a, uh, um, of a different race or a different uh, group of people, whether they're natural born Americans or not, um, not only from that perspective, but also from an international perspective, it's one of those things you can't unsee, I think. And, um, and I think sometimes I can be seen in this conversation, kind of like he's saying, I think a lot of people just say, hey, you know, take, chill out a little bit. It's great here, right? We're drinking beer on the back porch, you know, we're enjoying the 4th of July. You know, you, you can't get this in other places. Well, I, you know, I think that, I think that's just, just us liking home, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like my couch better than other people's couches. I don't know. It's just, I think people feel patriotic about it. And there's a, there's this trend over the past 20 years of, if you don't say that you love everything about America, um, you're not patriotic. I mean, they went after Michelle Obama for saying that mm -hmm. and she has to love everything. Her perspective is a lot different than yours and mine, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole lot more to the American story than we like to admit. I mean, you know, um, what happened to Native Americans, right? Um, yeah. You know, the our country was, in some some aspects, literally built by slavery. Certainly, some right. of our economic engine that got going, and and things that that we still probably benefit from 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 that sordid history, right? I had a, and maybe I've said this before, but we have a I had an anthropology professor who said he spent his whole life studying Native Americans. And he's like, my house is on Native American lands. And, you know, like, I've dedicated my whole career to, um, you know, appreciating their culture, understanding them, kind of fighting for their rights. And yet, mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to give up my land for my right. house. Right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I was in. Well, and there's the, there's the whole econo economic imperialism stuff, too, right? So if you, uh, you know, the, the whole discussion about tariffs in China, um, you know, as misunderstood as that is by the current administration, as big of a mess as that is, um, when you listen to economists, the United States has run the world economy almost to its own benefit for many, many years. Um, there's been a lot of movements of trying to get us to forgive national debt to third world countries, to, you know, to, um, we're kind of the Walmart of the world. If you remember the Walmart story where they pressure their suppliers into taking profit so low that they go out of business. And that's what it, that we have had similar policies for a long time. And um, yeah, I love that I can get all those things. And I love that the access to the products and consumerism here is, is, uh, you know, at an all time high, but at the same time, there's a cost to it. And we just don't, we don't ever see it day to day. Yeah. You know, some of those countries can almost be seen. Maybe we almost see them as a nation as our suppliers, right? And have treated them uh, totally. as such. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think about Central America and bananas, you know, the banana republics where we definitely had our hands in politics uh, pretty heavily. You know, uh, we had American companies that owned large portions of like Guatemala and Nicaragua. Um, I was traveling in Nicaragua in the town of Puerto Cabezas, which is on the Caribbean coast and walking down the street. And this guy kind of looked like George Foreman kind of looked friendly and put his hand out and said, uh, where are you from? And, uh, it's like, are you from England? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm American. And <laughs> he gripped my hand and it is like, his squeeze tightened on my hand. And, and he said, I'm glad you come. What can you do for me? And at first I thought mm. maybe he was just saying like, what can I do for you? Or how do you do? Just like in not the best yeah. English. Yeah. Right. Um, but then he said like, you owe me. And, and it turns out he, um, he fought against the Sandinistas and he was trained in, there's a school called the school of Americas. I believe it's in Georgia or South Carolina. It's just shame. I can't even remember it right now. Um, in the eighties, when we were kind of trying to fight communism around the world, and we trained him and, and folks like him. And then we sent them back to kind of fight our fight for us. Mm -hmm. right. And um, a lot of graduates of the School of Americas have gone on to do some not great things. Um, I know in Guatemala, some, there's, there was a period of history where there's death squads going around. And they were led by graduates of the School of Americas. And, um, 
And so like, that's something I, when he was shaking my hand, I really didn't even know what the school of America's was exactly. Or I kind of knew a little bit of that time in history, but there again, it's just kind of like another step to awareness kind of realize the, the positive impact we've had on places. You know, I've been to Kosovo mm-hmm. where there's a Bill Clinton street and people credit the United States for pressure in NATO and, and mm-hmm. ending the war and saving their lives. Mm-hmm. But there's other places that, and other people, um, that maybe don't feel so positively about right. our impact. Right. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things that I really like, that I think it's amazing about our nation is our diversity. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, and then you've traveled in Europe and then you see it to be a little bit less the case. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been through a number of trips over the past few years. My kids got older. We've gone to Europe a few times. Um, I love saying that sounds so pretentious. Um, so, you know, I love that on here. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, Vienna uh, in Austria was a perfect example. I was there. We, we lived actually with our exchange students' parents. So we were in like the real world, right? We go to the grocery. We'd take the, take the trains into Vienna. They lived outside of Vienna, almost kind of like we are at Indianapolis right now. And um, um, I was so struck by how beautiful it was, how clean it was, how orderly it was. There were street vendors. There was no trash anywhere. Um, it was beautiful, just beautiful. And then I, you start looking around and after a little while you realize there is no one here, but white Austrians. Right. And, um, we think about Europe as being very liberal and, you know, I joke around a lot about, boy, it'd be great to live there. Um, and there are parts of it and places probably more in the Scandinavian countries, I think would be a perfect fit for me. But um, I started to realize listening to people around us that they did not like people coming in from other countries. They didn't like the Japanese. They didn't like the Russians. They didn't like the Italians. Um, and, uh, and I rarely saw a person of any real brown color at all. Um, so yeah, they have a, a pretty homogeneous, uh, um, you know, population. And I think they would like to keep it that way. Um, but that, that keeps some of the disruption and some of the challenges we have. We're trying to incorporate, you know, a thousand cultures in the United States, not to mention regionally, regional culture work too. But um, when you bring in people from all these other places that are running from other things, it creates challenges as we're seeing right now. Now, God knows we can handle it better than we are, but for sure. Yeah, I, I, Austria seemed like a very isolationist country when I was there. And so, yeah, things were clean, neat, simple, orderly. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not the same as what we're seeing in Texas and other places right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a rise of nationalism right now, especially when we have like climate refugees and just refugees from all different, you know, acts of violence and war and, and trying to find a place to live. And there is that clash when cultures meet. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so one of the things I really like intellectually is to be challenged, uh, like have a have start a day with thinking the world is one way, and then reading something or coming into contact with something, and then all of a sudden I start to ask questions, right? I start mm-hmm. to ask, and I start to see that there's it's more complex than it is. And and today's guest has um, helped me and challenged me, I think, in many in many people in that way. And uh, her name is Kelsey Nielsen, so it is kind of confused, confusing in the interview where it's, you know, I'm, my name's Kelsey, I'm, it's, but I'm a guy. Um, I've met like two other guy Kelseys in my entire life. So two Kelseys. Kelsey Nielsen uh, has definitely challenged me. I first met her, she reached out to me when she was studying social work as a student at Temple University. And then after she graduated, she, I think she read one of my books. I don't know what it, which one it was, and, or one of my blog posts maybe. And um, then she was in East Africa uh, working at an orphanage. And while she was there, she started to realize that this, the orphans all kind of had parents and what were, you know, what, what led them to give up their kids or how their kids end up here. And shouldn't they be working towards like keeping kids in their own homes with their own parents? And, and so she started to kind of, and I let her do a guest blog post on my blog about this idea of how nasty these orphanages can be, right? And how profitable they can be when you get uh, outsiders, Westerners coming in and seeing these cute kids, posing for pictures with them, 
um, there's a there's big there's big money in that uh, less money than if you're just keeping those kids in their own homes with their own parents and yeah. Yeah. so she's the one of the founders of an organization called No White Saviors and. Mm. So she started to question her own intentions and the, what she was doing in, in these countries and what was what she was seeing around her. And um, No White Savers has a very active Instagram account. And here's the bio for No White Savers. We never said no white people. We just know you shouldn't be the hero of the story. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not listening. And I have to admit, I was a little nervous going into this conversation. I don't know about you, Jay. Uh, you made me nervous. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, because they they really call people out, and and I, and it really kind of made me examine many of the things in in my writing and my travels and my life, um, where I was walking around with kind of this invisible privilege that I was even unaware of, and access mm-hmm. I would get to places and people that it was a lot because where I was from and the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you uh, think about think about your interactions over the years. I'm sure. Yeah. So, um, anything else to add? No. I'd, let's 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 play it. So we had a great chat with Kelsey and Jay. You're there for part of it, uh, and then you kind of had to do big boy stuff. Um, I did. I had to leave. And uh, so we talked for quite a while. So I think we're going to break this one up into two parts. And so after the interview, will just be kind of the close. And the next week we'll have part two with Kelsey Nielsen. But let's get to part one right now. All right, uh, Kelsey Nielsen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, so you're uh, with the group No White Saviors. Tell us a little bit about No White Saviors and your role with it. Absolutely. So No White Saviors, um, if people are not familiar, we started off as just an Instagram page that was started just almost exactly a year ago. Um, We had no intention for it to become something that we had no idea it would become what it has, essentially, is that we... Myself and two women in Uganda that I was very close to, one I had formerly worked with, one I just knew from doing NGO work um, there, I, we had been talking a lot about the issues with missionaries and power dynamics and colonialism and racism and things like that that were still very prevalent in, um, in the NGO world, in the missionary communities and things like that. And so this platform kind of came in a came at a time where we were we were just frustrated jointly um you know obviously for different reasons but for a joint reason of wanting to see things change and so we started it um as a way to kind of engage in conversation about this in a way to expose certain um certain things that were going on that were either criminal or just highly unethical and really not okay um and so we started it we got a few hundred followers at first. We're like, that's cool. Like that felt like a lot. Um, now a year in, we're at 170,000 followers. So we, some people have said, obviously we've tapped into a nerve. Um, obviously there is something that we are touching on or many things we're touching on that, that needed to be. And so um, I think with that, I've noticed that throughout the years of being involved in development work and as a social worker, that's my degree. I have an MFW from Temple in Philly. Um, that a lot of these conversations will happen where if something like Coney 2012 happened, or you know, when your article you published or your blog you published about Tom's shoes went viral, there's certain things that like it comes up, people talk about it, and then it goes away. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, in terms of this platform, it's that ongoing conversation, it's that consistency of okay, yes, there's going to be a level of exposing problematic behavior, but we're also going to show people how things can be done and give people outlets of what they can support um, that is coming alongside of and investing in Ugandan-led projects. And whether it's Ugandan-led or it's, um, uh, it's a Black community in Philadelphia and investing in leadership and organizations that are working in their communities instead of the traditional, I think that 
the normal um, way of things has been for too long, the experts, a lot of times white people or just those with access to higher education coming in and deciding we know the best way to address problems in a community. And that's not just an international problem. It's a problem everywhere. It's a problem mm-hmm. within our own country and our towns and cities here in the U.S. I mean, that's kind of how that's how it started. I I don't know that you can ever plan for a social media platform to go quote unquote viral or to get the level of like exposure it did so quickly. Um, so we weren't. I was happily like I just finished my master's. Um, my MSW at Temple and I was working in the juvenile justice system at like doing running trauma groups. So I was doing more like Mm. clinical work and I really valued that. But I always, I've always found myself um, someone who is questioning the systems and the way, the reason why things were the way they were. And so I think honestly, even Kelsey might be able to attest to that because the blog that I had guest posted on his blog was about why so many kids in Uganda were living in orphanages when they had families. And so that, yeah, that was kind of, that's always been my nature. I think even as like a kid was kind of always questioning whether it was like religion and I grew up in the evangelical church. So that was always fun for my mom. Um, (laughs) And, and I think that that's just, yeah, I think I've always kind of wrestled with like power structures and, and why things were the way they were and injustice and things like that. And not as much just like, um, I love the clinical side of social work and I love working one-on-one with people, but I think, um, yeah, I think that like my, like who I am and my nature is like kind of more of a rabble rouser and more of like a confrontational. And sometimes that can be a bad thing. Um, but when it comes to addressing, um, I think things, especially intercommunally, like whether it's in the church, whether it's across us as white folks or Westerners and the problematic behavior and um, patterns that we see, I, yeah, I think that there has been that a lot of good that has come from that as well. So just kind of trying to channel it into good and not just like needless or senseless, like uh, confrontation. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah this awakening, uh, even as like, uh, like what age were you? Was this more of like a teenager thing or high school um, or college or? Yeah, I think that, I think that it was probably suppressed a little bit being a female in a evangelical environment. Um, we were taught that like, I remember being told at a young age that my mom would never go to a church where a female was a pastor. Mm. Um, and so from a young age, I feel like I was kind of like, under, it was understood that you needed a man's leadership. Um, and that just, I, yeah, there was just a lot in my childhood and things like that. Um, I grew up with a, like in, an, in a fairly abusive home environment with a dad that was pretty unstable. And I think that learning that like the man is supposed to be the head of the household and the protector and all these things. And it was a direct contradiction mm-hmm. from what I was seeing growing up. I think a lot of times our life circumstances and the way that we experience the world at a very young age can really shape the way that Mm -hmm. we see a lot of these, like a lot of these issues and, and, and uh, engage in a lot of these conversations because I've met a lot of white people that feel like it's, Oh, they'll always bring it back to and say, it's a socioeconomic issue. This is a money issue. Um, And obviously socioeconomics, and financial status and access to resources play a role um, because that that grants people a level of power and agency, right? But um, growing up poor and white, growing up in a broken home and white, and then seeing also the privilege that the color of my skin has granted me, if mm. anything, that has shown me just how real white privilege is and how real the benefits and the protections I experience are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, so I got an email back. Uh, I, I searched my email, and uh, back way back in 2012, you emailed me through um, my website uh-huh. and kind of told me where you were at. You were at Temple, um, and you had been to East Africa, I think, a time or two. We're doing some work there, and we're starting mm-hmm. to question some, um, starting to question some of the things that you were seeing. Can you, can you take us back to like? when you were at Temple and you were studying social work and, and when you, 
when you first went international on an international trip to do some of this work, like what your intentions were, oh, yeah. what your thoughts were in those moments? Absolutely. So yeah, that was, so I think the first time I, I had a little bit of like, I had gone on some missions trips with my church. So when I talk about my role with No White Saviors being a white savior in recovery, I can very clearly see a lot of these things were so bred into us at such an early age. Like this wasn't like, it's not, it wasn't like a, um, <laughs> you weren't making the decision. Like I'm going to be, a, I'm like, I wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be a white savior. It was all of the, the videos and the imagery and the missionaries who would come speak at your church. And just like the level of like, like missionaries are very romanticized in, in churches. And especially I think in evangelical churches in Western countries, um, it's seen as like the most sacrificial thing you could do is go overseas and serve, serve, quote unquote, serve people um, and like be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like there's so many different like buzzwords and mm-hmm. phrases I remember. And so you grow up really thinking like, this is the way I have to live in order to like show Jesus to people and like live a life that is honoring of God. And so you would get instant praise, whether it was a short term mission trip, but mm-hmm. definitely if you decide to move overseas. Um, I feel like the more rough the, the country you're willing to move to, or actually the, it was always the, the country God called you to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the more glorified and the more praise you would get because of all your sacrifice, right? So that, um, that was all very much present early on. So I remember going on, I went on a trip, like a 10-day trip to Peru when I was 16 or 17. I remember like digging like it was on the beach outside of Lima. And I remember digging, a, we dug like a foundation for like guest houses or something for this organization. I'm like, what was I doing at 16 or 17 digging a foundation? Like we didn't know, like we didn't know the right way to do that. And that's like really scary because what if that building collapsed because we didn't do it mm. right? So it was very much them giving us a role because we were there. We spent however much, you know, probably like $1,500 or something on on the travel and we come and show up in a group of 20 or 30 people and now the people there have to find work for us to do um and we probably didn't do it right so they had to go and redo it anyway so um that those things were already happening um before I even set foot in Uganda so I already had kind of like a you know a, a pretty like rich background in white saviorism um and so then i remember um in high school probably like around that same time find like finding the invisible children stuff and that was before coney 2012 okay. um I, yeah i remember going i ended up like going and sleeping outside in dc the one year because they had this thing called like displace me where you were mm. this is so ridiculous and wild when you think about it but it was to go and experience like what the night commuters experienced in Uganda um, and you were going to go sleep outside in like cardboard boxes. And it was this like hip trendy, like we're going to, if like a bunch of like white kids in America sleep outside in boxes, then people are going to start paying attention. And I get, I now I can understand why that seemed appropriate. Right. But I think the most important thing throughout the years of this have been knowing when we see why something was problematic, we have to be able to name it and mm. commit to doing better instead of just like justifying it and trying to rationalize it. So yeah, yeah that I had, I had, um, I had done that. And then I remember a, a girl in my church was going to Uganda for a few, like three months. And it was in my, it was when I was like 20 years old. So this was about nine years ago. And she was going to Uganda to volunteer in an orphanage. And because Uganda was on my radar, because I had already heard about it from um, yeah. the Invisible Children organization, I was like, yeah, like this sounds like what I need, like my next step. I was, you know, trying to, I think a lot of young 20 somethings just starting undergrad are trying to find themselves. And I think white saviorism is a lot of times the way, whether it's a gap year or it's a mission trip or it's whatever, like you're, you're a lot of white saviorism is this like, uh, it's, I mean, it's a huge manifestation of privilege and the ability to try to like go out into the world and find ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so as we're like out finding ourselves and trying to like dip our toes into different like 
internships or volunteer projects or things like that, you know, a lot of times we're taking on positions or responsibilities that we're highly unqualified for. And so while like at the orphanage, when I went there, um, I was just like helping take care of kids and I was, you know, changing diapers and things like that. Even that now in hindsight, I would never recommend anyone go and volunteer in an orphanage in that capacity because you are helping to further attachment issues in an already harmful environment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, these kids are struggling to attach already because of living in an institutional setting. So seeing the fact that there's a revolving door of volunteers coming in um, and really it's like for selfish reasons, right? Like we get to go and feel like we're like loving on, that's like the, again, these are all these phrases that people use. Go love on some babies, right? Love on some, some African babies. Um, That's like, I honestly have heard that multiple Mm. times um, or some version of it. And so it's a lot, it's about us, right? Like that experience that we're having um, there's no long-term impact for the people there. There's no, and surely the money that we spent to go there and to live there could be very much better used if invested into the work that's already being done. Um, but it's about our experience. And so that after, uh, probably right around the time I wrote you was when I was finishing undergrad at Temple and moving over to, planning to move over to Uganda because at that point, I, we had seen my co-founder and I, who was another young white American woman who was just finishing undergrad, um, we both met in Uganda at the orphanage we were volunteering at. And we were seeing that kids in the orphanage had a lot of families. Um, I think most, almost like more than half of the kids in the orphanage that we were volunteering at had relatives mm-hmm. that they were going to be re- reunited with, but were separated from for a month or sorry, for a few months or a few years. And so we started to ask those questions of like the Ugandan social worker on staff and different people in Uganda who were already talking about this. Um, you know, what, what needs to be done? What, what can be done in order to address these issues um, before children need to wind up in an orphanage in, in the first place? And so I worked with the orphanage to resettle um, some kids back home, but that wasn't a really sustainable option either. So I was, you know, um, I, I think, was there some good, it was, it was paying school fees and paying some money for food and things like that, but there was no like transition out of that. It was just kind of like, here's a need. This is how we're going to meet it at 20 years old or 21 years old when I was doing it. How much did I know about how to structure a proper intervention to like transition kids out of an institution and into their community. I didn't. And so it was just kind of like uh, uh, in the guise of like passion and like, like motivated by a desire to help and meet a need, which is, I think it is inherently good, right? We're not saying that that desire is bad or that it's, it's evil to want to help people. And I think honestly, some people at first glance, might hear that from us and that Mm. never that is not what we're saying and the needs that exist in these communities are real but it does matter it does matter how we engage and how that help is delivered because a lot of times we can either be setting up a situation for dependency so that when we're gone there is even more harm done because now that that need is not even being met and there's no thought of how to actually have that need met when we're our absence is there. And so, yeah, there's just been, that's been a whole, yeah, I winded up, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit scattered because this is like a whole, I'm like unpacking nine years of a, a journey out of kind of into white saviorism of how I got into it. And then as I'm, I would say continuing to get out of it, I don't believe that I've arrived at just not being a white savior. I yeah. think this is is an ongoing process. It seems to me that the fact that at 22, you're able to be at this orphanage and, and then convince people that you're going to start to transition these kids out and execute that, right? Like kind of just right. shows like the privilege of, of your whiteness and of just being from the West and to be able to execute that. Because if you went to any orphanage in the United States and said, hey, here's what we're going to do. I'm 22. Let's do this. Like there's no way, right? right? Like there's right. Just, Absolutely. That's exactly that. 
but there's also that sense of like, even though maybe we don't really recognize that power, people are maybe are, are looking at you in this way. And to some extent that kind of has to feel good though, right? Like you feel like you are making an impact, uh, even though in hindsight, you kind of question that impact. But in those moments, you feel like at 22, you're doing something that you couldn't be doing in the United States. And does, does some of that like feel like you're important and that's good? Oh yeah. I mean, I think there's, you have like the savior complex and you have the God complex. And I mm. think there's either like, those are levels to it or they're intertwined because I think that that's something that is obviously like we talk about when we talk about internalized racism, internalized like colonial mindsets and things like that is that you have countries and cultures that have been colonized up until 50 or 60 years ago, some even more recently and are still you know working it's a level there's a huge level of privilege to even be having these conversations and we understand that right is that people in the village in uganda don't have the time to sit down and think and talk about this they're trying to make sure their children are fed that you know they they have what they need that like that's that's their focus and so when we talk about some of the communities and the people that are most affected by this um they don't, yeah, they don't have the luxury to sit around and talk about this, but they don't also have the agency or the power a lot of times. And that's what it comes down to. So when we're given that power, just without it's, it's the, the concept of like unearned power and privilege of like, we did nothing to earn yep. that. Right. Like it's just this instant, you walk into this setting and you're instantly elevated as this like moral, morally superior, inherently like well-intentioned, inherently more knowledgeable um, and that stuff even still, it still comes up because of how, how people are conditioned, like even down to like the writing styles and things like that on our team. And that's, um, yeah, there's just like so much, man. Yeah. There's so much it does. Yeah. It does feel good. I think that you go there and you're like, oh, wow. Like, um, the kids all like get excited to see you and people like, the, like the Mzungu or like the the white people and it's not just Uganda I know this is the the like this is the case in so many places are just treated as just inherently good and inherently like a a like beneficial presence like there's no question of like ulterior motives at least not until shown otherwise so it's a difference of I feel like in America I feel like if if we're presented with someone coming and trying to do something good or whatever. A lot of times it might be like, okay, let me like actually like vet you and make sure you're safe and make sure you're doing things the right way. Whereas in Uganda, it's kind of like, well, like I'm just going to give every like foreigner that comes in the benefit of the doubt and trust that they are doing things the right way and that they care about people here. Um, and so, yeah, I think that a lot of us go there with, with a lot of different things we're seeking, but automatically get an access to a position or authority that we really are not either at the age or the qualification or the experience level, a lot of times all three, um, to be able to handle. And so instead of actually having to either go back and get more training or more experience or work under um, a company or organization for long enough, we're given the instant ability to form our own organizations and the instant ability to like basically live the best life, like, like live a life where you're praised for being so self-sacrificial, but also a life that's easier. Like that's the other thing. A lot of people think that it's harder to live in a place like Uganda. I, I honestly believe it's much easier. Your money goes further. You have the ability to have people help you around your house and like, do your laundry and, and clean, clean your house. Like most people have that in Uganda. It's like you're and an instant one percenter, isn't it? Like exactly. You're just, yeah. Yes. You're an instant one percenter. You go from maybe being low, like maybe there's, I mean, there's a lot of people that come from money, obviously, but you could go from being like a teacher or even like, I know people that were baristas or like nothing wrong with that. Right. But you're not making $90,000 as, as a barista at Starbucks, but you can move to Uganda and form an organization and now you're instantly able to pay yourself $90,000. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even that, if you are earning a, the wage of a, of a barista in the United States and you're earning that wage in Uganda, 
it still often allows you to access a higher level of living, right? Or yes, effort. absolutely. The money goes so much further. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Jay, you have a question? Yeah, Kelsey. Uh, yeah, this is Jay, obviously. Um, yep. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we actually hit on mission trip. Uh, I don't, I don't know what order these will come out yet, Kelsey, but, um, um, oh yeah, we already hit release that. So, um, I, I, it's interesting. I was on your on your different platforms reading about um, you know uh, some of the current issues that you're trying to fight, including uh, you know unqualified medical people providing medical right. services and that sort of stuff. And certainly, I hope those things are exceptions. And some of the things we've talked about, and you mentioned it, is you know there are some well-meaning people, and they go out and they think you know giving love to people for some short period of time is 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 nothing but a good thing. But, um, you know, I, I, obviously some of the stuff I might couch and, and I wanted your interpretation is it's more irresponsible than it is. Um, um, uh, of course it's going to be detrimental, but it's more irresponsible than it is, um, um, evil, like you said, right. People right. are trying to find something good to do, but, you know, Kelsey covers in his book a lot that we don't measure the outcomes of some of these investments of time and money. And yeah. even just money given in the wrong way can be an irresponsible use of power. Right. Um, you've probably seen that as well. But um, uh, how, 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 do you, how do you get people to understand the responsibility they're taking on by visiting or giving money to any sort of cause? Which is, mm. That's a really good conversation. I mean, that's really, I love that question. Um, I, so I think that we, we try to really talk about motivation and assessing, like reflecting on why, why you're giving, whether you feel like it needs to be done publicly or privately, whether it's done because it's the need that is being expressed by the people or it's a need that you've decided that you want to meet. Um, and so I think we've, we've, there's a bunch of different areas I feel like on our platform that we've brought up and had in conversation. Um, one of one of the biggest ones, um, and I think a post that was a bit controversial, but a conversation starter was ending the poor but happy narrative. And that's mm. the idea that poor people exist. Um, and this is not how I think people, again, I know this is not what people think, but if you really look at it, a lot of times in these function, like in the function of the way things are going and the way that things are set up right now is that poor people really function to give people with more money a sense of appreciation for what they have. Because you oftentimes hear people say, wow, I went to Uganda for two weeks and people were so happy with so little and it made me so grateful for what I have. And so- Hashtag blessed, of, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And, and that, the really like, the, why that is so dangerous is because I feel like we've decided that's enough. We've decided mm -hmm. that just going there, <laughs> like, like think about how wild, like as if our presence is more beneficial to people than addressing systematic poverty and oppression. It's like, Oh, I came and I gave you some used shoes or used clothing, some sweeties and candy or whatever. And like, and you're so poor and you're struggling to feed your kids but at least like I came and visited you, right? Like that's, that's so wild. Like that, the fact that that is so normalized in the context of like missionary work and humanitarian work and things like that. And obviously people can go and serve a real purpose. Like there's people as medical professionals that might go over and they're actually qualified and they might be able to provide a specialized service that someone else isn't able to provide. And there might be someone who's a trauma therapist that can go over and collaborate with Ugandan health, um, mental health professionals and help develop a trauma treatment program for refugees. Like those are just some examples of like that, that in that capacity, there's obviously like there can be really strong collaboration and really good work done. But when it comes to just unqualified people just coming over to experience, and again, this is me saying I've been a part of that. Um, I think one of the biggest ways we can help people see that is when we take ownership of our own role. It's not just pointing the finger out and saying, look at all of this, like, um, 
look at all of the harm you're doing. It's saying, no, look, at, I want to tell you about the harm that I've been complicit in. Mm. And I can let's unpack and sit down and talk about how that even was possible and why that was possible. And we can say, absolutely, did I have good motivations? Yes. But I'm going to also sit here and tell you that doesn't matter. To me, yeah. I don't, it doesn't matter that I had good motivations. It matters that now I see why this was harmful or not the best way. And we're going to talk about how it can be done better. And if we don't start seeing more and more people doing that, we're going to continue to see people uh, just like repeating these same patterns, right? Because you're going to see these things normalized by other people and you're going to just see people continuing to like perpetuate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it it certainly goes back to having some some real diligence and a thought process behind where you give money. Um, obviously, you know, local, you know, you're giving money to the YMCA or you know to uh, you know whatever agency. You got to pay attention to those things. But the vetting is much bigger when you're talking about sending money to a different place, which we've we've talked about at least in terms of its effectiveness we've talked about in previous uh, episodes, but um, it puts the responsibility on someone that I don't, I think people are very, very, they have a short attention span when it comes to charity. So they'd rather write a hundred dollar check and be done. Um, And I think that's why things like the United way appeal to people because they know it's being administered, whether it's being administered right or properly or, handled the right way is one thing. But if you start talking about how you can help someone in another country, especially an impoverished country with poor politics and, uh, uh, you know, a bad system and, uh, you know, the distribution of that money comes into real question, it takes work to figure that out. And I wonder if we as Americans have the attention span to do it. Yeah, I think that we struggle with attention span for anything. If you even think about the way social media has drastically changed our attention span it's like it used to be like okay people will sit and watch like a three minute video and then it's like a one minute and now it's like no you need 10 seconds people will watch 10 seconds (laughs) of what you have to say (laughs) um you do i mean it's finding ways to do it in short sound bites sometimes that get someone someone's attention and i think what we've had to what we've had to accept is not everyone is going to want to engage in this conversation right like not everyone is going because surely while we have 170,000 followers in terms of the reach and how many times people have shared our content we could have double that but not everyone is interested in this conversation and we're not interested necessarily in trying to convince people who aren't who aren't wanting to come to the table right now what we are interested in is setting a new standard and having a level of almost forced accountability And that might sound harsh, but like, I think that's necessary, right? Like if we're not willingly walking into and saying, we want, we want this, we want accountability. Well, what we have the ability to do is while maybe the donors aren't, aren't willing to sit and, you know, listen and understand, you know, read a whole article about why the United Way or whatever organization we're talking about, Oxfam, whatever, um, is, you know, problematic in whatever capacity they might. Um, and just for reference, like, I'm not actually like, those are just examples. I don't have any specific issues, um, that I want to address with either of them, but, um, I, yeah, I think that, I think that the power with a platform like this is that you can actually expose certain elements of aid and development and mission work and, require a level of accountability and that actually we've seen that already like we've seen organizations big and small um once we talk about and and share certain elements of why their current methods are harmful they we've had them write to us like comic relief that's huge comic relief Mm. is huge and Mm -hmm. comic relief has committed i mean we don't know if we'll see it for sure but they say that they are going to start doing better and i think whether or not they do, we, they're obviously on our radar. They're obviously on our followers' radar. And, you know, people have started to, even when we don't catch something, so many of our followers will catch it before we do. So Comic Relief, um, that's, that's based in the UK, right? And they're the Red Nose? Yeah, they're based in the UK. UK. They're, I think they're funded largely by the BBC. Okay. And it's the Red, Red Nose Day? Is, is yep, that's yep. them. They're huge. 
So uh, well, I know that we might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but walk us through what happened with Comic Relief. Okay. Um, so they had a celebrity named Stacey Dooley come out to Uganda. Um, this was probably in February. Um, and so she came to Uganda and was filming a documentary for Comic Relief about, I think it was about malaria and like infectious disease and highlighting the work that Comic Relief was doing. Well, that's all great, right? But <laughs> she took a picture with a child that looked extremely uncomfortable and posted on her Instagram. And the picture read the caption, first of all, the child, like you can tell, I mean, I, I think most people as humans can tell when a child does not feel comfortable with someone just through their facial expressions and body language. But as a social worker and from years of now working in, in child protection at different capacities, I can tell like if that child doesn't know you, like they, that child has no attachment, he doesn't know who you are, he doesn't want to be held by you. And she posts this picture and the caption is obsessed with a bunch of S's and like a broken heart emoji. Mm. And this is a woman that says she's been doing journalism for 10 plus years. Um, and people started tagging us in it. We weren't even the first, I don't follow, none of us follow Stacey Dooley. Um, I, don't, I didn't even know who she was before this, but our followers in the UK were tagging us and saying, you know, this is problematic. This is why you should follow No White Saviors. If you're in Uganda right now, you should reach out to No White Saviors. We offered, this is the part that a lot of people don't understand. We almost always, before anyone's called out publicly, we offer either to get on the phone or to DM or email and have mm -hmm. a conversation first. Yeah. And so usually if it gets to the point where we're exposing something publicly, it's because you've directly turned down any opportunity you've had or any like, you know, effort on other people's ends, whether it was us or our followers to actually listen to why this is harmful. And so Stacey Dooley like was very much doubled down, said it's ridiculous that people would suggest I would take a photo with a child I didn't know. Um, I, you know, I would never do that. I've been like, I'm this established journalist and I would never conduct myself in that way. And this child's family asked me to take the photo with him and all of that. And so what ended up happening was the Daily Mail came over from the UK and cause this blew up it like David mm -hmm. Lammy, um, is an MP and he was commenting on it and had already had a history of commenting on white saviorism in comic relief. It was after the Ed Sheeran campaign. Um, and so we, yeah, we started, it started blowing up. We were on BBC quite a bit. We were um, interviewed by a whole host of different um, journalists from the Guardian to the Daily Mail to BBC and all of that. And what, like, we ended up finding when the Daily Mail came and they shared this with us. And then we ended up having, um, Olivia and some of our partner organizations go out and meet with this family. Um, but we found out that all of it was a lie. So not only did she take this photo with a child she didn't know, but she lied about it because she said mm -hmm. this was a kid that she had a relationship with. The family said they had never met her before she was there filming. Um, she went up to the child when he was crying and going to get comforted by his grandfather. Mm -hmm. She went over and asked them if he could, they could, she could pick them up. And then, you know, waved some waivers in, her, in their face. But they had no idea who wow. Stacey Dooley was. She didn't do anything for them. So, like, one of the things they said to us when we went out there was, why do these white people keep coming out? It was the journalists. It was Stacey Dooley. It was, why do they keep coming out here and doing nothing for us? Like, they, like, this was a grandmother who was taking care of her grandchildren and had, had no really, like, no income. She's in a very rural community. And so what ended up happening is we ended up partnering with one of the organizations that we're helping get off the ground. And that's part of what we're doing with No White Saviors is helping, you know, startup organizations that are Ugandan led and making sure we can help get them the right people and the right resources to do the work that they are more than capable and qualified to do. And so we partnered with them and they helped her go through business training and start up a small mm -hmm. business. And so we basically, um, you know, our, we basically cleaned up the mess from her mm. going in and just kind of exploiting this child and treating him like a prop because he essentially went, like, went viral. And this family mm. doesn't have, they don't know what Instagram is. They don't know what, like, the BBC, like, they don't have, they live in the village, like, in a very rural community. And that's just not their life. That's not the, like, 
the the exposure or the access that they have. And so the fact that like this kid's face was all over the internet and all over the news and this family just like, they had no control of that. And so it might seem like it's a small thing, but the fact that she doubled down and still has yet to take ownership, the post, everyone, so many people asked her to take it down and she still has that photo up. She's still maintaining, no matter what the family says, no matter what any of us have found, she has said, nope, I'm going to keep it up because everything I said is true. So yeah, that's that situation. (laughs) And honestly, Comic Relief noticed a decline. We don't, I don't know that it's because of us or because of this, news story but i think that people comic relief defended her and Mm. i think that after seeing them criticized for the ed sheeran campaign and then seeing them with the stacy dooley this whole situation i think people are starting to see like wait maybe this isn't because this speaks to a larger issue within the organization is well like if this is how you're handling these situations how do you run as a charity altogether um Mm. But yeah, so it, it's it really starts to feel so dehumanizing, right? And I know it's uh, I I can't speak for very many situations, of course. You know this this one just hearing the story, it is a, a racist, dehumanizing situation because yeah. you're not hearing the stories of the family. You're not hearing the story of you know what what eventually became you know something more prosperous for them that uh, they were able to find their way out of that that level of poverty with something. Um, what you're hearing is through the pictures, you're getting some impression of destitute sort of Sally Struthers, that dates me, I know, sort of uh, <laughs> view of some poor brown child who is in another country and doesn't have things as nice as we do. Don't you feel sorry for them? They have no options at all. And um, it, it kind of leaves the story there. So you go to bed feeling pitiful and that is kind of where it ends. Right. But there's a story behind those people. There's a path for those people. Um, and, um, uh, the dehumanizing side of, like you said, the kid was a prop It's right. to garner emotion. And if that doesn't have a purpose to it, then it just, just, I think it just adds to our superiority a little bit. Right. And I just don't understand, like, I don't see any other, like, and honestly, like there's photos, like taking complete ownership. There are photos that I took early on with kids that I had either very little or very like, like didn't know very well or didn't know really at all. And it was maybe they asked, maybe they even did ask to pose for the photo or maybe I like, you know, it was, it was a situation where it absolutely was, this is normalized where you can go take a photo with a child and because that that picture of us in a in, with a selfie in front of you know um, a, a hut or a slum a, a home in the slum, and it's just that like idea of like that imagery you could do virtually or like literally nothing like that's and that's what happened in this situation. But I have been complicit in that too, and so I cannot sit here and say, Stacy Julie, you're I can't believe that was even something you would think about because I can understand why, right? I can understand the why, I can understand the how, but I cannot understand once we're given the conversation around why this is harmful, I cannot understand if we really, if we really care, if we really care about the people in the communities and the work that we're doing, then I cannot understand once we're actually shown why this is, is harmful, I don't understand us not listening. Um, I mean, I know, I do, I do know why it happens, but I don't accept it and I don't, we don't tolerate that. So Jay, that was part one with Kelsey. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts going through your head. I do, but I have to save them, you said, so. Save them. Yep. So that's going to be part one. Uh, We'll come back next week with part two. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffrithcheyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.